Sometimes I use the fact that we have been to the moon in a lighthearted way, and I use uh, the greater to lesser argument. If you're familiar with this, it goes like this. Let me give you an example. Um, why is it that every ironing board seems to make that screeching sound when you set up? I mean, and then I'll say something like, come on, we've been to the moon. You know, if we can go to the moon, we can make an ironing board that doesn't screech like that. That's an example of the greater to lesser argument, okay? But I don't want to uh, just treat going to the moon today in a, in a lighthearted way. I actually want us to think about something. We have been to the moon. Look at it. Some 239,000 miles out in space, we have sent men there and returned them back safely. It's an amazing feat of human technology. And I remember I was 12 years old. The date was July 20th, 1969. I was sitting in the living room with my family, watching on the screen as Neil Armstrong, as you see there, stepped out on the surface of the moon for the first time. And he said those words, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. I was, what we were watching CBS. I think everybody watched CBS back then, but it was like Walter Cronkite. That's one small step for man, he said. <laughs> one giant, I, I do a terrible impression, giant leap <laughs> for mankind. But it was something like that, you know, and he, he was kind of crackling a little bit in his voice because he recognized this is something that's incredibly awesome. And there's a glory to that. I want us to think about this word glory for a minute. Because some of these human achievements are glorious. That's the only way you can put it. A couple of weeks ago, I was at a concert at uh, Blossom Music Center. Cleveland Orchestra was there. Very gifted pianist was there playing one of my favorite pieces. It's Rachmaninoff's Variations on a Theme of Paganini. And I know that may mean nothing to you, but to me, it's a half hour of gorgeousness. The piano's playing, the orchestra's playing, he's playing brilliantly, Rachmaninoff, what he wrote. I said, how can a human being write music like that? And it was glorious. There's glory in the arts. You know, there's a human glory to that. There's, uh, you know, there's a glory in athletics. There's a glory in other accomplishments, a human glory. And we need to celebrate that. It's right that we do so. But I want to talk to you today about a glory that far surpasses every other glory, any human glory and I want to say to you today that Jesus Christ is glorious. Jesus Christ is glorious. We've been looking at him. And I hope that you get a picture of him today that you can just stir again in your heart how glorious he is. His name just gets relegated to a religious leader. It, it gets, you know... It, we, it's not, you know, some people, well, these people that say we didn't really go to the moon, that was Utah or something, but uh, we've been to the moon, folks, and it's glorious. And Jesus Christ is glorious. John said of him, we have seen his glory. We have seen, and it's not like any human glory you've ever experienced. It's, a, it's glory as of the only son from the father. God has come among us in the flesh. And that's a glory. He's full of grace and truth. Peter would write, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw him. We saw what he did. One of the ways that God reveals his glory is through miracles. And the Bible is filled with miracles. I mean, God spoke and the universe was created. He parted the Red Sea so the Israelites could pass through. He saved Daniel from hungry lions in a, in a lion's den. He preserved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a furnace that killed the men who threw them in. 
there's Jonah and the big fish. <laughs> what do you do with that? I, I mean, he sent this fish to preserve Jonah and, and continue the mission. The, the conception of Jesus Christ is miraculous. His turning water into wine is miraculous. What we saw last week is a miracle. How do you take five loaves and two fish and feed thousands of people? I, was, uh, I went to YSU, Youngstown State University, back when the earth was formless and void. <laughs> Some of you got that biblical reference, but... Uh... Uh, I studied music there, and uh, one of the required non-music courses, a core course, was Introduction to Philosophy. And so I went to my Introduction to Philosophy course. I still remember the prof. His name was Dr. Shipka. And uh, one week, we, he said, we're now going to begin and talk about this week, the problem of God. I didn't know God had a problem, but uh, I understood what he meant, seriously. What he meant was, philosophy is about rationally thinking things through, using human reason. And he pointed out many miracles in the Bible and said, these cannot be explained rationally. You have to, you have to believe this by faith, therefore. So he wasn't being necessarily antagonistic. But he mentioned the resurrection of Jesus, that that could not have happened, obviously. Men do not raise from the dead. I remember raising my hand. I was young. And I said, Dr. Shipka, what about all the eyewitness accounts of the resurrection of Jesus? And for a moment, he looked at me like, oh, there he is, the one token Christian in the, uh, in the uh, philosophy class. I'm, but he was, actually, he was not brutal at all, but he, he said there's many re rational explanations for why people would say that they saw Jesus, one of which is mass hysteria. And what I'm saying is... Uh, <sighs> The God of the Bible, what, what he's right about is this. The God of the Bible is beyond human reason. You can't, he can't be limited to the box of what we can explain. Do you believe that? <laughs> he's beyond it. In fact, the Bible says that God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. Foolish in the sense that it just cannot understand and comprehend all God is. But today we're confronted again with a miracle of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at it together. Can I just pray for us all? Thank you so much. Let's, let's pray and ask God's help. Father, I thank you for these dear people. I pray that you would speak to all of our hearts. We all need you. We all need wisdom that comes from you. We need your word. And we're looking at a miracle today that some people would say, that's just a Christian myth. But I pray that you would help us to look at it and study it and be encouraged by it. Jesus, you walked on the sea. I believe that with all my heart. I pray that you just teach us in these moments as we go through these verses briefly. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. You remember the context last week. We're in the book of Mark and Jesus has multiplied the bread and the fish. And so now uh, this story picks up right at the end of that. This miracle has occurred. Everyone's eaten. The leftovers have been brought. People are recognizing this is a miraculous thing. And in verse 45 of chapter 6 in Mark, it says, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, the Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. He commands them, hey guys, get in the boat. John reveals that there's, uh, there's concern here on Jesus' part that the people witnessing this miracle, are want to, they're going to want to forcibly make him king. 
They had political and nationalistic views of the Messiah at that time. So they recognized, hey, if this guy can do this, he can deliver us from Rome. Let's make him king. And Jesus, of course, wanted nothing to do with that. That's not why he was here. He was here to die for our sins. So he commands the disciples, get in the boat, go back to Bethsaida. Bethsaida was, remember, uh, a where they had come from. It was up in the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. They had come and gone to a desolate place. And now he's saying, hey, get out of here, guys. I'm going to dismiss the crowd. Okay, that's the scene. Then in verse 46, it says, after he had taken leave of them, the disciples and the crowd, he went up on the mountain to pray. Around the Sea of Galilee, do you remember we've told you there's, there's mountainous areas? And he went up on one of those mountains. The disciples were out on the boat uh, heading back to Bethsaida. And he went up to pray. I want to say something here too. We are going to see the glory of Jesus as he performs miracles. And in his deity, Jesus is glorious. But I want you to also know that Jesus is glorious in his humanity. Do you know that he came to live the perfect righteous life that you and I can never live? He said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I'm not setting the law aside. I came to fulfill it. Do you know how incredible a statement that is? I came to live on earth as a human being and fulfill every command that God has made perfectly without ever sinning. That's an amazing thing. And, and one of the things he did, one of the, the ways that Jesus lived his life as a human being on this earth, as he prayed. I want to take prayer for a moment out of the, the realm of duty and have to. Sometimes I think, I got to pray. I'm one of the pastors of Hope Church. I got to pray. But right away, as soon as I say that, I'm going, you idiot, that's not what it's about. It's not that I have to. I get to be with God. He asked me to commune with him. Jesus wanted to commune with God, wanted to be with God. He was humble. He was dependent. He approached God in a way that said, I need you, God, in my life. And I'm just saying, without any guilt, we could all say here, I don't pray enough. Who, could, who wouldn't say that statement is true in our life? But listen, let's at least look at this and say, God, would you help me to want to pray to you more, be with you more, talk with you more, experience life with you more? That's the way Jesus lived in his humanity. He was fully God but he was fully man. And that's a mystery we will never fully understand while we're on this earth. But listen, both are true. Look at verse 47. So he's up praying, the disciples are out on the water, and when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. As I read these verses, I said, doesn't that feel like life sometimes, like for all of us? It's like, it's like we're out on the boat and the waves are hitting us and bashing us. And, you know, be, earlier in the, in the story of Mark, uh, Jesus had been in, in the boat with the disciples when a storm came. But this is different, you know. He's not with them now. He's out on the land somewhere. And sometimes we feel like, is Jesus with us? Is, does God see us? Does he know us, you know? But this verse 48 says, he saw that they were making headway painfully because the wind was against them. That's an encouraging verse to me. He saw them. Even, I don't care if you don't think he sees you and whatever you're facing in life, this scripture says he sees. He knows. You know, and I, here's another thing. Storms can come suddenly, can't they? 
in life. It's not like uh, you, there used to be a commercial on TV. I don't know if it's still on there that, you know, this guy has, reads a note and it says, tomorrow you will have a heart attack at seven, you know. <laughs> and no, it doesn't come like that. It just happens, you know. Um, but here's the thing. Jesus is always with us. He always sees us. And this storm came not because they were being disobedient. How many of us know, listen, if we sin, if we're living in ways that we should not be living, storms can come into our lives of our own making, right? You know, we're suffering things because of the choices we've made. But that's not the case in this, in this scene. Who told the disciples to get in the boat? Jesus told them to get in the boat. He said, get in the boat, go back to Bethsaida. And now they're just obeying him. They're doing what Jesus said, and I'm in this spot. <laughs> I'm in this difficulty. The storm's beating me up. Why did this happen? <laughs> I'm only doing what Jesus told me to do. Friends, I want to caution us into some simplistic thinking, this cause and effect thinking, that if we do the right thing, if we do what God wants us to do, then the circumstances are always just going to fall right into place for us. He's always going to make the seas smooth for us. It, I just don't see that in the Bible. I see people that they're struggling. They're out on the water. One day, uh, oh, and, oh and let me just say this. Sometimes people have this thinking, even Job's friends, when all these calamities came upon them, what did they say to him? Job, there must be some sin in your life. Please, just confess your sin. He says, I haven't sinned against God. I haven't. Job, come on, there's some sin. All these things could not happen to you if you were living for God. One day Jesus and his disciples came upon a man who was born blind. Born blind. And the disciples, you can tell they had this kind of thinking. It was in their culture, prevalent. They said, who sinned? This man or his parents that he's born blind? And Jesus said, this man didn't sin, and his parents didn't sin. This has happened to him. Listen, this has happened to him so that the work of God might be displayed in him. There was a purpose, but listen, he suffered. For many years he suffered. He could not see for many years. But God said, I'm using this in his life so that the glory of God could be displayed in him. That doesn't necessarily encourage us sometimes. But listen, God has some purpose, some glory that he wants to bring. I see it in people of the Bible. Joseph suffered. He didn't do anything wrong. He did what was right, but his brother sold him into slavery. Corey Ten Boom is a saint that lived during World War II. She hid Jewish people so that they would not escape uh, the concentration camp. She be, ended up being there herself. Every, she was the only one to survive. All of her family died in concentration camps. There are believers today simply for saying, I believe in Jesus Christ. They're being killed. They're suffering. Friends, you can love God and serve God and know God and experience very difficult waters. Some who have been obedient to God have had to bury a son or a daughter. Some who love God have had an unfaithful spouse. Some who love God and are obedient to him have suffered financial hardships, and it's been hard for them. Some have battled against the headwinds of infertility. Some have faced the betrayal of a friend or a family member. Others battled depression or anxiety or post-traumatic stress. Some are parents of special needs kids. They didn't do anything wrong. 
They didn't do anything wrong, but they find themselves in a lifetime of caring for a special needs child, moment by moment, day by day, for the rest of their lives. Friends, why do these things happen? Most of the time, the answer is known only to God. But know this, this text says, he saw them, and he saw that they were making headway painfully. And ultimately, I believe God will reveal his glory and bring redemption to the things we suffer. In fact, as we see in this story, these disciples might have been asking that very question. Man, Jesus told us to go, and now look what we're facing. But he wants to reveal his glory to them. Look at verse 48 in the middle of the verse there. 48 in the middle, it says, And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. The Romans divided the night into four watches. 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. was the first watch. 9 p.m. to midnight, the second watch. Midnight to 3 a.m. I should be doing this backwards for you. Midnight to 3 a.m., the third watch, and 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. was the fourth watch. So at the longest part of the night, when they've been rowing the longest, they've been out there several hours, I bet they were trading off. Peter, you take the oar. You do it a while. You know, that's when Jesus comes to them walking on the sea. I mean, picture it. Wind, waves, beating against the boat, the dri uh, driving the disciples away from the shore that they had intended to go. And despite all their efforts, they could not make any headway. And then suddenly Jesus comes to them walking on the water. Now, he could have help them in any way, I believe. He could have calmed the, the sea from the, where he was at on the mountain. Why did he come walking to them on the water? I believe that he wants to reveal his glory to them and reveal to them in a deeper way who he is. And I say that because there's a strange phrase here in, at the end of this verse 48. It says, he meant to pass them by. What? <laughs> he meant to pass them by. You mean he wasn't going to stop and help? He's, hey, Jesus, we're over here. Stop. You know, I don't think that's the scene at all. I think Jesus is taking two pictures by walking on the sea and by wanting to pass them by. He's taking two pictures from the Old Testament to reveal to them that he's God. The first picture is found in Exodus 33. Stay with me for just a second. Moses asked God, please show me your glory. And God told Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. And he takes Moses and puts him up in a cleft of a rock. Remember the story? And he actually covers his face while his glory goes by, but he, then he removes his hand and lets Moses see some of the glory. A, a, I don't know what that was like, but he let him see him from the backside. I believe Jesus is walking by that boat and he intended to pass them by, not to ignore their need, but to reveal to him, I am the God who passed by Moses. And I am the God who's passing by you. And look at about walking on water. One of the ways that Job describes God, Job who had all these uh, issues in his life and problems, he describes God this way. It's God who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. 
Now, there's a Greek translation of the Old Testament that would have been very familiar to the disciples as well. And it says this, it it translates that verse this way. It's God who alone has stretched out the heavens and walks on the sea as on firm ground. (laughs) There it is. Jesus, who, who can walk on the sea as firm ground, huh? Who does that? God can do that. And Jesus saying, I walk on the water. I'm passing you by like God passed by Moses. He's revealing himself to them. Now look, in verse 49 it says, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. Are they picking this all up? (laughs) Are they getting like uh, Exodus 33 and and Job 9? I I don't think so, not at all. (laughs) Not at that moment. But a time is going to come where they're going to put it together. That's also an encouragement to me. Like when you're going through a storm in life and you just can't put it all together... (laughs) That's okay. You know, live with the tension of that. But believe that he's going to bring some understanding, some perspective at a later time toward that. But they were, it says here in verse 49, they thought they saw, saw a ghost. They cried out, and for, for they all saw him and were terrified. I, think, I bet they screamed like my granddaughter Lily. <laughs> Man, can that girl scream. But listen to what Jesus, but immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. I believe those words can be very meaningful to us right in this moment and to you that may be facing storms and problems that are in your life. Jesus says, take heart, be encouraged. It's I, I'm with you. Don't be afraid, hold on to me. In uh, 2012, we were down in Florida when Hurricane Sandy was threatening to hit right where we were at, right on, uh, we're just near West Palm Beach, just a little bit north, and the track at one time had it projected of going right over us. So before we needed to be evacuated or anything like that, the storm took a northern course, it stayed off, off the coast a ways, and it went up the coast. But uh, the Weather Channel was broadcasting live from the very beach where we go, just, just right over a bridge, and that's where we go. And Linda and I are watching. Hey, I said to Linda, Jim Cantori, he's over on Singer Island. You know, we ought to go over there. Now, that wasn't very smart to say that, but uh, Linda looked a little like, uh, no, seriously, we should go over there. I mean, he's, he's standing there. You know, it's windy and stuff. So one of the, one of the uh, you know, the rain comes in these bands, you know, and then it, it, it was kind of like between a band. And I said, come on, let's go. So we drove over to the beach. We walked out. There's Jim Cantori. There's the lights. We were hoping to get on TV, you know, be like stars. <laughs> but they weren't broadcasting. In fact, I think they were getting ready to pack up because the storm was... <laughs> The storm was moving away, you know, and they, they want to be where the storm is, you know. But listen, I, I thought of the scene when I was thinking of this, and what if, as I was there on the beach and looking at the way, I mean, the water was like going crazy, and there was rain that came. Eventually, we had to run uh, to a resort right near it and uh, hold out for a while. But what would it be like if I was like in that scene and I saw a man walking on water coming toward me? I mean, seriously. I mean, I don't blame these disciples one bit. 
Friends, take heart. God is with you. Don't be afraid. He's going to help you somehow. Now Mark does not mention this in his account of this event, but Matthew tells us this was the point of which Peter says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. And Jesus says to Peter, come. And he goes out onto the water. And I think, wow. Other than Jesus Christ, Peter is the only man who walked on water. I mean, Neil Armstrong walked on the moon, but Peter walked on water. And I know we make a big thing. Yeah, but he saw the wind and waves and he, he started to fall. Yes, I know he did, but he walked on water. There was a moment in the storm that he looked at Jesus and said, Jesus, if it's you, let me walk on the water too. He hadn't calmed the storm yet. I, I just see a picture of this that we can reach out to Jesus and say, I'm in the middle of something here, God, but help me to walk on top of it. Help me to walk on top of it. Help me to have victory in it. The fear is gripping me or the pain is real, but God, help me right now. Jesus, would you, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. And listen, even if your faith falters, he'll pick you up just like he picked Peter up. It's an encouragement to me. Isaiah, God said through the prophet Isaiah, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. What a promise from God. There's fruitfulness within the storm. But I also want to tell you this. There is, I, I believe in verse 51, it says, He got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded. <laughs> I believe that storms will ultimately be stilled. Okay? It may not be the first watch of the night. It may not be in the second watch or the third or the fourth. And let's be honest, some storms that we face are not stilled in this lifetime. They are only stilled in heaven. But know that storms will ultimately be stilled. Did you know, you may not know, maybe you've heard this, that in the Bible, sometimes the sea is used as a symbol or a metaphor of evil, chaos, danger, opposition. Let me give you an example. In the book of Revelation, that's very symbolic. Jesus sees, or excuse me, John sees the beast, the Antichrist, coming up out of the sea. What's he saying? The beast comes up out of the sea, out of the chaos, out of the evil. Out of, he's risen up out of those kind of things. In fact, at the end of Revelation, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and there was no more sea. I, that, that used to discourage me a little bit because I love the ocean. Many of you love the sea. And I, I, but he wasn't talking about bodies of water. He wasn't saying there's not going to be any bodies of water. What he's saying is in heaven, in the new heaven and new earth, He's using that word sea symbolic. There'll be no more chaos, no more destruction, evil, opposition. It's new. Friends, there is a reality that God will still the storms. Look at Mark uh, 6.53. It says, When they had crossed over, after the storm was stilled, they came to the land at Gennesaret came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. How many of you know that storms can change the trajectory of your life? 
These disciples had set out for Bethsaida, and they were driven down into the middle of the sea, into the west, and they landed all the way over in Gennesaret. But listen, Jesus was with them. Even though the storm can change the trajectory of your life, would you know that the Lord is always with us? And I believe that this text also says that there's going to be fruitfulness after storms. You know, after a storm has passed in your life, after something, he wants to bring fulfillment and, and fruitfulness to you. I see this in verses 54 through 56. I'm not going to read them, but I'm just going to paraphrase them. Uh, Jesus, they land at Gennesaret. People continue to come to Jesus. He continues to heal people. Uh, the, the disciples are with him and all those things, and many just come, and even if they touch the hem of Jesus' garment, they're healed. I just see a picture of fruitfulness. They just come off of this storm. I don't even know when they slept. Hopefully there's something in here that we don't know about in the scripture. But they landed at Gennesaret and all of a sudden more people were coming. And it wasn't Bethsaida. It was Gennesaret, but God was still there. Friends, when life has carried you off course, when discouragement or pain has come to you, when you land in Gennesaret instead of Bethsaida, Whatever your loss, whatever your cross, hold on to God and know that he will bring fruitfulness after the storm. Not only in the storm, but after the storm. He's a God who comforts us in all our troubles, the Bible says. And he does so so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received. Part of the fruitfulness of going through storms is that you've been through something that you can help somebody else with who might be going through it. And you know what? Another benefit after a fruitfulness that comes after a storm, you often know God in a deeper way that you didn't know him before the storm. You know that Job, what he, listen to what he wrote after all his trials had ended and God had restored him. He said, my ears had heard of you speaking of God, but now my eyes have seen you. I heard about you, but now I've experienced you and I see you. Friends, Jesus Christ is glorious. And his glory, his greatest glory is not simply that he walked on water or turned water into wine. His greatest glory is that he lived as a human being upon this earth and offered his sinless humanity upon a cross so that our greatest need and peril could be overcome, our sins. Did you know that Paul uses the greater to lesser argument in the Bible? I was encouraged to, to find that. I'd read it many times, but I just never thought of it as a greater to lesser argument. I'm too busy talking about ironing boards. But here's a real one for you to, to wrap your mind around. Romans 8.32 says, He, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also... With him, graciously give us all things. In other words, if God is willing to let his son die on a cross for your sins, your greatest need, how is it that he won't help you with every lesser need? He will help you. Friends, the old hymn writer said it this way, Sin and despair, like the sea waves cold, threaten the soul with infinite loss. But grace that is greater, yes, grace untold, points to the refuge, the mighty cross. Friends, Jesus is glorious. 
He's worthy of your trust. He's worthy of your worship. You know, Matthew adds that when Jesus got in the boat, and Mark doesn't say this, but Matthew adds when he calmed the storm, it says the disciples worshiped him and said, truly, you are the son of God. They had a greater revelation after that storm of who he was. In fact, our text says that they hadn't understood, even with the the loaves and the fish being multiplied, they still didn't put together (laughs) who Jesus is. But after this, they saw him walk on water. He said, you are truly the son of God. Listen, he's glorious. I don't know where you're at in life today, what you're facing, but Jesus sees you. He loves you. He's provided for you. I just point you to Jesus. Trust in him with all your heart. Believe in him. Perhaps today for the first time, maybe he's showing you there's a direction you need to change or whatever. Follow him. He's glorious. And know that he's with you even through the things you can't understand. I pray that God will encourage you today to live for him. Friends, he walks on the sea. Father, I thank you for this story that you put in the Bible uh, to encourage us and to help us. And I want to thank you, God, that you're a God who stills storms, that you do care for us even when we may not know that or, or even realize it. And God, I just, I don't know how to pray at the end of this. I I just pray that the people would be encouraged to trust in you and follow you, hold on to you. (coughs) Help us to want to be with you more in a day. Even tomorrow, if we would just spend a few moments that we wouldn't normally have spent with you, then perhaps all of this message would be worthwhile. Just help us in our humanness to... Honor you the way you should be honored by surrendering our lives to you. May we say with John, we have beheld his glory. And may we say with Peter, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Not in the sense they were God, but in a very real sense, we've seen you through the eyes of the Spirit. We love you, Jesus. We exalt you and thank you for walking on water. But even in Even more so, thanks for taking uh, your humanity and living out perfect righteousness and offering that as a payment for our sins. We love you. Just pray that you'll continue to help us as a church to, to let people know in this area how much they're loved by you. In your name we pray. Amen.